This episode contains distressing themes and is intended for mature audiences only. Listener discretion is advised. On this episode of They Walk Among America. In the quiet middle-class neighborhood of Queens Village, New York City, Harriet Mulhauser was just getting ready for the day ahead. It was March 20th, 1927, and Harriet's morning was disturbed by a sharp knock on her front door. Opening it, she was greeted by a distressing sight, a look of terror etched across the face of her nine-year-old neighbor, Lorraine Snyder. Lorraine told Harriet that something had happened to her mother and she needed immediate assistance. Reacting swiftly, Harriet wasted no time and sought help from another neighbor, George Collier. Together, they hurriedly made their way to the home of Ruth and Albert Snyder. They proceeded through the home and up the stairs, where they found Ruth nearly unconscious. Though her hands were free from any restraints, her feet were bound loosely with clothesline. Aware that time was of the essence, George set off to locate Albert, the head of the household, hoping he could provide some answers. He cautiously entered the master bedroom where he was confronted by a terrible sight. There was a man bound and gagged, face down on his bed, surrounded by blood. It was Albert Snyder. Hello, listeners. I'm your host, Nina Instead, and welcome to Episode 76 of They Walk Among America, a joint production between the Law & Crime Podcast Network and They Walk Among Us, the award-winning true crime podcast. Albert Snyder had suffered a brutal assault, being struck on the head with a heavy object and garroted with a wire from a picture frame. The garrot had been used so violently that the wire had cut into his neck. The killer had also bound Albert's wrist with a piece of the same wire and had secured his feet with his own necktie. Additionally, the killer had gagged Albert and inserted a chloroform-soaked rag into his nose. Near Albert's body was his own 32 caliber revolver. There was also a torn Italian newspaper nearby. Harriet urgently called for her husband, Louis, and together with George, they carried Ruth to Lorraine's bedroom, placing her on the bed. They promptly summoned both detectives and Dr. Harry Hansen, a local physician residing nearby. When the detectives arrived, Ruth was in a state of hysteria, repeatedly fainting. She informed them that earlier in the evening, she and Albert had been at the residence of Mr. and Mrs. William Fidgen on Hollis Court Boulevard. She recalled, We had a great time, and we drank quite a bit. We got home about 1.30 this morning. 
I went upstairs to my room while Albert drove the car to the back. The front door was open for about five minutes. Ruth recounted to the detectives that she and Albert slept in separate rooms, and sometime after she had retired for the night, she heard a noise. She suspected it might have been their nine-year-old daughter, Lorraine, calling for her. Ruth mentioned that she got out of bed and began making her way toward Lorraine's room. However, as she passed the spare bedroom, an unidentified man suddenly appeared and struck her on the head. According to Ruth, the man was approximately 5 feet 7 inches tall and had a black mustache and spoke broken English, saying, I believe I heard him call to someone down below. When she was informed about the torn Italian newspaper, Ruth suggested that the man's accent could have been Italian. Ruth explained that she had remained unconscious until around 8 a.m. Upon regaining consciousness, she had discovered herself bound, gagged, and in immense pain. She struggled to free her hands from the ropes and subsequently removed the gag and screamed for her daughter. At first glance, Ruth's account appeared to align with the state of the crime scene. The house had been thoroughly ransacked, with belongings scattered and drawers and cabinets left open. Ruth reported that her fur coat and some jewelry were missing, along with money from Albert's pocket. Leading the murder investigation was Police Commissioner McLaughlin, who publicly speculated it could be a robbery, revenge, or a spiteful act. Albert's body was taken to the medical examiner's office where the pathologist discovered a one-inch-long and quarter-inch-wide gash on the right side of his forehead. Just below the gash there were slight abrasions, as well as another abrasion at the back of his skull. The cause of Albert's death was determined to be asphyxiation. Albert Schneider was born Albert Schneider into a German family in 1882. His father, Charles, owned a well-regarded bakery in the Williamsburg neighborhood of Brooklyn. Albert pursued studies in art and graphic design at the Pratt Institute and had a fondness for outdoor activities. Tragedy struck when his beloved Jesse Gouchard, whom he had fallen deeply in love with, succumbed to pneumonia at the young age of 30 in 1912. Albert never fully recovered from the loss cherishing the photographs he had of Jesse and always adorning a pin on his shirt bearing the initials J.G. In 1914, Albert found employment at Motorboating Magazine, where he encountered Ruth Brown, a secretary who claimed to be 19 years old but was actually 23. Their paths crossed when Ruth dialed Motorboating Magazine while attempting to reach another business and it was Albert who answered the call. Impressed by Ruth, he extended an invitation for her to explore job opportunities at the company. Ruth was subsequently hired to work in the pool serving various publications, including Motorboating, Cosmopolitan, and Hearst's Weekly, which were housed in the same building. Although Ruth eventually left her position for a higher-paying job, she and Albert maintained contact. Despite their contrasting personalities, Albert and Ruth seemed to hit it off. In the afternoons, Albert would rendezvous with Ruth in New York City, 
treating her to lunches and outings. In March of 1915, Albert proposed, and Ruth joyfully accepted. On July 24th, the couple exchanged vows at the German Evangelical Church on 137th Street. They settled into a modest home at 9327 222nd Street, Queens Village, a burgeoning suburban area that demarcated the border between Queens and Long Island. Following their marriage, Ruth suggested changing their surname from Schneider to Snyder to downplay Albert's German heritage. Two years later, they welcomed their daughter Lorraine, and, from the outside, they appeared content and harmonious. They frequently entertained guests and were members of a bridge club that met every Saturday evening at various members' homes. However, Ruth, being a decade younger than Albert, found herself growing restless. Albert preferred domestic pursuits, such as staying at home, fishing, and tinkering with his car. More often than not, he immersed himself in an outdoor lifestyle, spending little time at home. In contrast, Ruth enjoyed socializing and going out. And while their courtship involved outings to the theater and meals at restaurants, married life proved markedly different. The couple clashed on various issues, including their daughter's education. Ruth really wanted Lorraine to attend a prestigious convent school, but Albert opposed the idea. One matter that deeply unsettled Ruth was Albert's unwavering attachment to his J.G. Penn, representing Jesse Gouchard, and his refusal to rename his boat from Jesse G. to Ruth. She seethed with anger due to the fact that Albert kept a portrait of Jesse in their bedroom. Furthermore, Albert was disappointed that Ruth had given birth to a baby girl instead of a boy. Ruth later recalled, he found fault with her because she was a cranky baby, and principally, too, because of her being a girl. Albert was a strict father and demanded tidiness and discipline, often reprimanding Lorraine for typical childish behavior. Despite their domestic struggles, Albert earnestly tried to salvage the marriage, often acquiescing to Ruth's every whim. During the summer, they traveled to Port Jefferson, although Albert did not particularly enjoy spending his summers there. Nevertheless, he aimed to please his wife. He provided well for the family, and by 1927, he had nearly paid off the mortgage with only $4,000 remaining. His weekly salary amounted to $115, of which he allocated $85 to Ruth for managing household expenses. Ruth learned to stretch their finances by befriending salesmen who offered wholesale prices to their acquaintances. In Queen's Village, she gained notoriety, as one local resident recalled. She didn't care much for women. She rarely spoke to women on the street, but she made it a point to acknowledge every man she encountered. Soon, she would establish casual friendships with them. Back at the crime scene, detectives' attentions shifted to determining whether any other valuable items had been stolen from the Snyder home, other than what Ruth reported. Curiously, Ruth's claimed stolen fur coat was found hanging in her closet. They continued in their search and found Ruth's supposedly stolen jewelry, including a bracelet and three rings worth approximately $200. They were concealed beneath her mattress. 
Canceled checks made out to the Prudential Life Insurance Company were also found in the master bedroom. Another oddity caught their attention when they realized the kitchen had been rifled through, which struck them as peculiar. One detective remarked, No professional burglar or thief ever touches the kitchen. Continuing their investigation of the residence, the detectives noted signs of damage to the front door. At first glance, it appeared as though the burglars had forcefully broken in. However, upon closer examination, they determined that the damage was inflicted from the inside. Their initial suspicions of a burglary began to wane, and the crime scene bore the hallmarks of a staged burglary intended to mislead investigators. While the crime scene was being examined, Ruth was tended to by Dr. Vincent Juster. He was perplexed by a lack of head injury, yet Ruth maintained she had been struck on the head with such force she was rendered unconscious. Furthermore, there were no noticeable marks from being tightly bound on her wrists or ankles, suggesting that her captor hadn't restrained her securely. Detectives were suspicious that Ruth wasn't being truthful, and she was brought to police headquarters to be interrogated. When they informed her that they had found her possessions, seemingly hidden underneath the mattress, she replied, I have been absent-minded of late and forget sometimes where I put things. The detectives asked her what kind of man her husband was, and she said that they had their differences. She explained that she liked to go to parties while Albert preferred to stay at home. Despite their differences, she described him as a good man, a good husband, straight and generous. Their daughter, Lorraine, confirmed to detectives that the marriage between her parents was not a harmonious one. She described how they would often quarrel over their differences, mainly her mother's constant late nights away from home. While Ruth was being interrogated, detectives looked into other possible suspects and made contact with others at the party at Mr. and Mrs. William Fidgen's home. They learned from other guests that during the party, Albert had gotten into an altercation with a man named George Howe. During the party, Albert exclaimed that he had lost his wallet with $75 in it, and George took offense to the comments. Detectives were keen to track George down, and they found him at the Commercial Hotel in Jamaica. He confirmed that he and Albert had an altercation, but maintained that after the party, he returned to the hotel and had remained there all night. His alibi was corroborated by staff at the hotel. Detectives turned their attention once more to Ruth Snyder, and she was subjected to a grueling interrogation at Manhattan Police Headquarters. They inquired about the canceled checks made out to Prudential Life Insurance Company and Albert's life insurance policy. Ruth initially claimed that the policy was only for $1,000. However, detectives confronted her with the higher value checks they had discovered. Pressed further, Ruth eventually admitted that the policy had been changed recently to $50,000. During the search of the home, detectives stumbled upon a small pin bearing the initials J.G. on the floor. They also found Ruth's diary, which contained an entry referencing the name Judd Gray. Police Commissioner McLaughlin seized the opportunity to probe Ruth further, casually asking about Mr. Gray. Ruth was taken aback and then asked, 
Has he confessed? Seizing the moment, Police Commissioner McLaughlin bluffed and claimed that Gray had indeed confessed. Ruth's demeanor shifted, and she proceeded to divulge a different version of events. She broke down as she revealed an intricate tale of infidelity and greed involving Henry Judd Gray, a 35-year-old married corset salesman. Ruth maintained that she hadn't been the one to physically carry the murder out, but she had planned it. Gray, who resided in the New Jersey suburbs with his wife and daughter, had been introduced to Ruth through a mutual acquaintance, sparking a two-year-long affair. Despite Gray's frequent travels for work, he and Ruth maintained a strong connection through letters and clandestine rendezvous. Ruth admitted that both she and Gray had planned the murder, although she claimed the actual murder was carried out by Gray. She alleged that she had feared the impact of Albert discovering their affair, as it would heavily favor him in a divorce. To conceal their relationship, Ruth had instructed the postman, George Marks, to hand-deliver all letters addressed solely to her. Ruth would send Gray checks to spend as he pleased, while he used his own earnings to provide for his wife and daughter. Whenever they met, Ruth always footed the bill, whether dining out or staying in hotels overnight. Throughout her affair, Ruth became increasingly suspicious that Albert was also being unfaithful. She meticulously searched his pockets for any evidence to support her suspicions, and once discovered ticket stubs from matinee shows. Ruth's mother, Josephine, recalled her daughter's resentment, saying, Naturally, Ruth resented this. Albert was so disagreeable about any excursions to the theater or to a restaurant which she suggested that she did not relish the idea of his providing amusement of this kind for another woman. In November of 1926, Ruth Snyder's interest in life insurance peaked. She believed Albert's existing $1,000 life insurance policy was inadequate, considering his active lifestyle and recent accidents. He had two accidents over the summer while working on the car, and he enjoyed an outdoor lifestyle that included fishing and swimming. When Leroy Ashfield, the sales agent for Prudential Life Insurance Company, came to the Snyder home to make his monthly collection, Ruth invited him in and said it was time for Albert to take out more insurance. She asked him to return the following week, and Albert agreed to take out an additional $1,000 in life insurance. Ruth also convinced Albert to sign a blank policy application in case they decided to secure more coverage later on. The next day, Ruth contacted Leroy once again, stating that Albert wanted to take out another policy for $50,000. She requested to be listed as the sole beneficiary, with a higher payout in the event of Albert's death due to misadventure. After making the change, Ruth once more asked the postman to hand-deliver her all letters from Prudential Life Insurance Company. With Albert's life insured for $50,000, Ruth and Henry Judd Gray began talking about getting rid of him. The relationship between Albert and Ruth continued to unravel, and toward the end of February 1927, she told Gray he had threatened to blow her brains out. 
Gray wrote back and asked whether her husband was being serious, to which she responded that she believed he was capable of anything. They concluded that the best way to obtain the life insurance payout was to eliminate Albert quickly. The details of the murder plot were exchanged through a series of letters, which they burned on Saturday night before executing their plan. In the letters, Ruth told Gray that on Saturday, March 20th, she and Albert would be away from the home at a bridge party. She would leave the door unlocked and said she would see to it that Albert was intoxicated upon his return. In preparation, Gray gave Ruth a window sash weight and told her to hide it at home. On Friday, March 19th, Gray arrived in Syracuse from a trip to Rochester and checked in to the Onondaga Hotel, where he was well known. He left Syracuse at about 4 p.m. on the Empire, carrying in his pocket a picture wire, rags, and chloroform. Gray arrived at the Grand Central Station in New York at 10.10 p.m. and crossed town by taxi to the Long Island Station. From there, he walked to Queens Village, arriving at the Snyder home just before midnight. He entered the home and lay in wait in the spare bedroom, but not before grabbing a glass of whiskey that Ruth had left out for him. Shortly after 1.30 a.m., Ruth and Lorraine returned home while Albert parked the car around the back. Ruth sang lullabies to her daughter, and Albert bid his wife and daughter goodnight before retiring to his bedroom. Ruth then went into her bedroom, and at about 3 a.m., she went into the spare bedroom where she had left the window sash weight for Gray. She and Gray then slowly crept into Albert's bedroom. Ruth recalled, I saw Gray strike my husband over the head. Then he choked him and pushed his face into the pillow to smother him. Once Albert had been struck twice on the head, a chloroform-soaked rag was forced up his nose. Ruth described what happened next. Then he put the wire about his neck and tied his hands and feet. Once Albert was dead, Ruth and Gray decided to bind her as well and then mess up the home to give the impression that the murder was the result of a burglary gone wrong. Ruth agreed, but she refused to part with her jewelry, so it was decided they would be hidden instead. Ruth told detectives that before Gray left, he gave her careful instructions as to how she should act to make it appear as though the murder was the work of intruders. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. 
They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Detectives were able to track Henry Judd Gray down to the Hotel Onondaga in Syracuse, where Ruth told them he would be. Detectives Harvey Swain, Thomas Leach, and William Seidenfuss arrived at the hotel around 2 p.m. and found Gray's name in the register. They knocked on his hotel room door, and Gray opened it with no resistance. As Gray was arrested and transported to be interrogated, his hotel room was searched. Here, detectives came across a pair of rubber gloves and a new blue silk shirt. During Gray's interrogation, he maintained that he had been in Syracuse visiting friends since Friday, March 19th. Gray stated that he posted a letter to Ruth and his sales report to his employer around 6.20 p.m. before retiring to his room at 8 o'clock. He had instructed the hotel desk to hold his calls and placed a Do Not Disturb sign on the door. According to Gray, on Sunday morning, he took a bath and had dinner at Haddon's home from 6 p.m. to 10.30 p.m. After stopping at a club for a couple of drinks, he returned to his hotel room to prepare for bed, where the detectives found him. Gray's account was supported by Haddon and the hotel staff, who confirmed that someone had requested his calls to be held. Additionally, maids noticed disarray in the bed covers when they arrived to clean his room on Sunday morning, suggesting someone had spent the night there. Despite this corroboration, Gray was still arrested. He then provided an affidavit to Chief of Police Martin L. Caden, stating that he had known Ruth Snyder for two years and had become friendly with her. Gray denied any contact with Albert Snyder, Ruth's husband, and claimed not to have seen or spoken to Ruth since the end of February or early March. While Gray initially professed that he knew nothing about the murder of Albert, he changed his version of events by the following morning. While detectives searched his hotel room further, they came across a Pullman ticket stub for the 8.45 a.m. New York to Syracuse train on Sunday morning. When Gray was confronted with this, he broke down to detectives and said that he was having an affair with Ruth and that he had killed Albert. However, Gray maintained that he only killed Albert because Ruth had threatened to expose their affair to his wife. He stated, She told me she would go to East Orange and tell if I didn't help her in killing her husband. Despite the fact that Gray claimed he was forced into the murder by Ruth, he commented, And I only wish there was some way we could save Mrs. Gray and the little Snyder child. It's going to be hard on them. Gray continued in his confession, and acknowledged he knew about the life insurance policy. He claimed that the murder was partially motivated because of the lure of money, as well as threats made by Ruth. His story about how the murder was conducted matched Ruth's story, but only a portion of it. Gray explained that when he entered Albert's bedroom, he was gripping tightly to the window weight, which was wrapped in brown paper. He approached Albert in his bed and struck him with the weight. This was where the stories were conflicted. While Ruth distanced herself from the murder, Gray said that after he dropped the weapon, Ruth picked it up and smashed it down on Albert's head. 
Gray confirmed that both he and Ruth stuffed the chloroform-soaked rag up Albert's nose, but he denied he had garroted him with the picture wire. The murder had been a particularly brutal one, and Gray said he had gotten blood on his shirt, so Ruth gave him a new blue silk shirt that had belonged to Albert. Ruth burned the bloody shirt in the furnace along with her nightgown, which had blood spatters on it, and then left the sash weight in a toolbox in the cellar. Ruth then removed Albert's wallet and gave Gray the contents. Gray told detectives he left the Snyder home at about 5.30 a.m., went to Queens Village Station, and then took the train to Manhattan where he had breakfast. By 8.45, he was on the train returning to Syracuse. On March 23rd, both Ruth Snyder and Henry Judd Gray were charged with the murder of Albert. They pleaded not guilty, and a grand jury was convened to consider indicting them on first-degree murder charges. That same day, Albert was laid to rest at his family plot at Mount Olivet Cemetery in Maspeth. Once his casket was lowered into the ground, the undertaker, W.L. MacDonald, offered a prayer. Our Father, we pray to Thee to take into Thy keeping the immortal soul of Albert Snyder. For the sake of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Afterward, around 50 of Albert's loved ones stepped forward to place flowers in the grave, including Lorraine. She was accompanied to the graveside service by her aunt and uncle, Mabel and George Snyder. Ruth had requested a leave from jail to attend her late husband's funeral, but her request was denied. The night before, the simple funeral ceremonies of the Dutch Reformed Church had been performed at the Snyder home. Following the service, it was announced that another man was being investigated for his role in the crime. Detectives had uncovered that after Gray left the hotel in Syracuse to travel to New York City, Haddon Gray had entered his hotel room, used the telephone, and rumpled up his bed. The purpose was to give the impression that Gray had been in the hotel room overnight. He also sent out a letter from the hotel to Gray's wife. However, Gray then admitted to detectives that Haddon was innocent and was unaware of his plans that night to commit murder. Haddon had been led to believe that Gray was having an affair with a woman and that he was helping him cover in case his wife called the hotel. The following day, first-degree murder indictments were handed down against Ruth Snyder and Henry Judd Gray. Afterward, Gray made two more confessions to the murder in jail. One was to his mother, Catherine Gray, and the other was to Haddon Gray. He said to Haddon, Yes, I committed the crime. I lied to you about what I was doing. I'm sorry I got you into this mess, old man. Meanwhile, Ruth spoke with reporters and denied that she was a murderess. She was asked whether it was true that she had married Albert for money, and she responded, My God, where do they get that stuff? She was asked about her relationship with Gray and remarked, Love had been eliminated from my home, and I drifted into intimacy with him. He told me he had his troubles at home, too. I felt sorry for him. I grew to love him. I love him still. He is the only man I ever loved. She denied that she was a wild woman like the media had portrayed her to be, and stated, I like dancing, playing cards, and the theater. I never drank except a taste, 
just to be a good sport. After making these comments, Ruth denied that she had any role in the murder of Albert. She changed her tune when it came to her feelings toward Gray as well, commenting, Whatever love, consideration, or affection I had for that man has turned to downright hate. He murdered my poor dear husband in a cruel and barbarous manner, despite all I did to prevent him. And then he tried to put the blame on me. Gray fought back and claimed that Ruth was a gold digger and often entertained men with large bankrolls. He spoke about the checks she had sent him in the months leading up to Albert's murder and said they were payments she made in return for introductions to his traveling salesman friends. He had wanted to sever his relationship with Ruth, but explained that time and time again he always returned to her. According to Gray, over the course of their affair, he fell under her spell and felt that it was damaging to his mental health. He said that he drank heavily and that when the topic of murder arose, his resistance was in shreds. During the course of the investigation, detectives uncovered that Ruth Snyder had made several previous attempts to kill Albert. In the Snyder home, they had come across a bottle of whiskey that was filled with bichloride of mercury. Dr. Alex Gettler, a toxicologist, said, it was the largest percentage I had ever seen in a poisoned drink. One small drink would have killed, but I am sure that Snyder never touched the whiskey, for I found no trace of the poison in his organs. Moreover, Albert's brother, Warren, claimed that she had attempted to poison him to death with gas around two months before successfully killing him. He said that Albert was overcome by toxic fumes coming from the kitchen one afternoon and ran from the house choking. Moments later, Ruth returned home to find Albert outside and commented, Oh, I thought you were sleeping. Albert responded that he was asleep in the lounge when he roused himself when he was almost overcome by the gas. It was discovered that the tube from the gas stove was disconnected. Ruth apologized and said she must have kicked it off accidentally. In hindsight, however, Warren believed that this was another attempt at Albert's life. These weren't the only attempts on Albert's life. Ruth had once tried to poison him with a mercury tablet which he vomited up and had left the car engine running in the garage. After a trial date was scheduled for April 18th, Ruth's mother, Josephine Brown, petitioned the courts to be appointed guardian of Lorraine. However, Albert's family also wanted custody of the little girl, marking the beginning of a fierce custody battle. The decision would be up to the court, but Lorraine professed she wanted to stay with her grandmother, Josephine, who had been caring for her at the Snyder home. Meanwhile, Gray's defense attorney, James T. Hallinan, announced he was seeking to separate the trials. He stated, the interests of Gray, I still consider greatly at variance with those of Mrs. Snyder. His request was denied, and Ruth and Gray would be standing trial together. Gray attempted to launch an insanity defense, but according to two experts hired by the defense and two for the prosecution, he did not meet the legal criteria for insanity. After five days of jury selection, a jury consisting of six men were selected, 
and the trial was ready to begin at Queens County Courthouse on Long Island. District Attorney Richard Newcomb delivered the opening statements, painting a picture of Albert Snyder as a home-loving man and Ruth Snyder as someone seeking a more vibrant and lively existence. He stated, Albert Snyder, the dead man, was the type who loved his home. Mrs. Snyder likes more life and gaiety. Not getting it from Albert Snyder, she looked elsewhere. He alleged that Ruth and Henry Judd Gray had plotted various methods to kill Albert, initially planning to bludgeon him on March 7th, before settling on a later date. District Attorney Newcomb asserted that both Ruth and Gray had entered Albert's room together and committed the murder. The first witness called to the stand was Warren Schneider, Albert's brother who testified about Albert's life with Ruth. Joseph Farrell, the office manager at the Waldorf Astoria, followed, revealing that Ruth and Gray often checked into the hotel as a married couple. Dr. Howard W. Neal, assistant medical examiner, stated that Albert died from strangulation rather than the weight blows. Dr. Alexander Gettler testified that he discovered traces of alcohol and chloroform in Albert's brain and stomach. The trial then shifted to Albert's life insurance policy. Leroy Ashfield, a Prudential life insurance agent, informed the jury about Ruth's manipulation of Albert to sign a blank policy application, which she later amended to $50,000. Dr. Harry Hansen, who worked at Mary Immaculate Hospital, then told the jury that he found no evidence of a head injury when examining Ruth. Next, the jury heard from Lieutenant Michael McDermott, who described Gray's confession to him. Ruth's confession was also presented to the jury, and both had placed the blame on one another. The sash weight, found in a toolbox in the cellar, was also entered into evidence. In the second week of the trial, the defense team presented their opening statements. Ruth's defense attorney, Edgar Hazeltine, argued that Gray had been the one to kill Albert, while Albert's defense attorney, Samuel Miller, said his client was not of rational mind and that he was hopelessly intoxicated and dominated by a will not his own. Defense attorney Hazeltine suggested it was Gray who first mentioned life insurance and suggested that Albert should be better covered. He stated, There was no concealment. Snyder knew what he was doing and instructed his wife to have the policies taken out. He claimed that Ruth had begged Gray not to kill her husband and that she was in the bathroom when the attack began. He stated, She tried to drag Gray off, but he pushed her and she fell, fainting away. When she came to, the deed was done. Ruth took to the witness stand and detailed to the jury the unhappy marital life she had with Albert. She then said it was Gray who came up with the idea to increase Albert's insurance, and it was him who committed the murder. She stated, I tried to plead with him to get it out of his mind. I pled to him, I'll bring your hat and coat. I heard a terrific thud. She claimed that she then fainted, and when she awoke, Albert was dead. Defense attorney Miller refuted this version of events and said that Gray's confession was made under duress and that the defendant never conceived, never realized, never comprehended what his hands were doing. Gray testified on his own behalf and maintained that Ruth had devised the murder plot. He stated, I told her I thought she was terrible. 
he told the jury the same story he told detectives, that both he and Ruth had wielded the weight and struck Albert with it. He said that after the first strike, Albert woke up and reached to grab his tie. He stated, She took the weight and hit him over the head. Following the testimony, the jury were sent off to deliberate. They returned just one hour later. As the verdict was read aloud, Ruth Snyder slumped in her chair while Henry Judd Gray stared at his mother. Both defendants were found guilty of first-degree murder and told they would die in the electric chair. Once Ruth Snyder and Henry Judd Gray were returned to jail, Gray pleaded to Undersheriff William Desmond to see Ruth. The Undersheriff recalled, He wants to see Mrs. Snyder. He's anxious to say goodbye and tell her he did not mean to rush her to the death house with his testimony. Undersheriff William Desmond said he would try to arrange the meeting with Sheriff Quinn. Lorraine was still much too young to fully comprehend her mother's fate, and Josephine explained that she understood she wasn't coming home, but didn't know she was going to be executed. Josephine said she would not divulge her parents' fate until Lorraine was older. On May 16th, Ruth and Gray were transported separately to Sing Sing Prison. When they arrived, their attorneys both filed appeals that resulted in their execution being postponed. They received a handful of visitors, but the sheriff forbade them from visiting one another despite Gray's pleas. Meanwhile, in September, Josephine was awarded guardianship of Lorraine. Albert's life insurance was worth $97,000, which included his own personal life insurance and the one Ruth had taken out to name herself as sole beneficiary. However, the insurance company moved to cancel the insurance and argued that it was obtained through fraud. Ruth's family announced they were going to sue to compel Prudential Life Insurance Company to pay the insurance to Lorraine. After paying one policy worth $30,000 to Lorraine without contest, the insurance company filed a lawsuit seeking to void the two other policies that Ruth had taken out, valued at $45,000 and $5,000. In January, all of Ruth Snyder and Henry Judd Gray's appeals came to an end, and the governor decided against granting them a reprieve. Local newspapers conducted polls on whether Ruth, as a woman, should be executed, and the majority of both men and women voted in favor of her meeting her fate in the electric chair. The execution date was set for January 12, 1928. Upon learning of their impending fate the day before, Ruth and Gray reportedly reacted in contrasting ways. Ruth was overwhelmed with distress, screaming and crying before collapsing on her bed. Gray, on the other hand, appeared more composed and resigned to his destiny. That night, their families visited them, but their young children were not present, as they were too young to comprehend the gravity of the situation. Gray handed $21 to the warden, along with a note specifying that $6 should go to F. Dixie Baldwin, the inmate in the neighboring death row cell. The remaining amount was intended for the other men on death row. In his note, he expressed his wish for the men to have a banquet in his honor after his passing. Additionally, Gray wrote a series of letters to his nine-year-old daughter, Jane, 
so she would receive one each year on her birthday until she turned 21. Ruth also wrote a letter to Lorraine, their daughter, instructing her mother to give it to her when she reached an appropriate age. On the night of January 12th, Ruth was escorted to the execution chamber at Sing Sing Prison. Once the 24 witnesses and 15 guards were seated, Ruth entered, accompanied by two matrons, Lucy Many and Lillian Hickey. The Roman Catholic chaplain of the prison, Reverend John McCaffrey, followed closely behind. Ruth wore a dark green gingham dress and a brown smock, tightly clutching a crucifix. As the guards approached her, she began sobbing. Led to the electric chair, she started reciting, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. Her arms and legs were secured, and a headpiece containing wire mesh and sponge electrodes was placed on her partially shaved head, strapped under her chin, rendering her unable to speak. State Executioner Robert G. Elliott stood nearby. At 11.01 p.m., he activated the switch, sending 2,000 volts of electricity through Ruth's body. At 11.03 p.m., the voltage was reduced while the amperage increased. Smoke wisps and a cracking sound emerged from the top of Ruth's head as her hair burned. After three minutes, the executioner flipped the switch, terminating the electricity. Dr. C.C. Sweet, the prison physician, listened to Ruth's chest with a stethoscope and declared her dead. The guards lifted Ruth's lifeless body onto a stretcher chair and transported her to the morgue. At 11.08 p.m., Gray was brought in from his cell to the execution chamber, accompanied closely by Protestant prison chaplain Reverend Anthony Peterson. Gray wore a gray coat and pants with a purple-bordered kerchief in his breast pocket. Like Ruth, he was strapped into the electric chair. Unlike Ruth, Gray remained silent. At 11.11 p.m., the executioner activated the switch, and electricity surged through Gray's body for three minutes. Suddenly, Gray's right sock caught on fire, filling the room with smoke. His face and neck turned bright red, followed by white, and his mouth hung open. Once the flames subsided, Gray was pronounced dead. Just the following day, photographs depicting Ruth's execution were splayed across newspapers nationwide. Tom Howard, a Chicago Tribune photographer working in cooperation with Daily News, had snuck a miniature camera into the execution chamber, strapped to his leg. As Ruth lingered in the odd space between life and death, he snapped the famous photograph. In November, after the executions, it was ruled that the life insurance policies could not be collected due to the fact that they had been issued fraudulently. Two years later, it was ruled on appeal that the two policies were invalid. Eventually, Lorraine was given the letter her mother had written her while awaiting execution, but the details were never made public. This episode was researched and written by Emily G. Thompson, editing and scoring by Corey Hiltman, script editing, additional writing, and production direction by Rosanna and Benjamin Fitton. For more on our series and notes on this episode, 
please visit theywalkamonguspodcast.com. And for more on the Law & Crime Podcast Network, please visit lawandcrime.com slash podcasts. This has been They Walk Among America. Thank you for listening, and please be safe.